welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. And so we're, we're learning what it means to experience the Holy Spirit. And this, throughout the summer, we've been doing a, um, a talk, uh, a sermon series called 10 Stories. Throughout the 10 uh, Sundays uh, in the summer, we've just been telling uh, stories, the parables of Jesus, specifically in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, also, we've been experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's been a wonderful thing. And it's not been like this, um, you know, front page of Cosmo kind of thing, like how to top five tips on how to experience the Holy Spirit better. Do you want more Holy Spirit in your life? Well, then you got to do this. It's not like that. It's just like as we tell the stories of Jesus, as we um, in, put ourselves into the parables of Jesus and into the teachings of Jesus, and as we see that uh, his parables and stories for what they were, which is uh, frankly just a mirror, you know, and, and see ourselves in these characters of the parables, we begin to experience something of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's all it is. That's all we're doing. We're just going to allow Jesus to walk the roads this morning. So I know we've done it a couple times. It might feel maybe a little um, uh, Catholic to you or whatever. We've we prayed, we sung, then we prayed, then we prayed again, then we stopped, then we prayed again, then we stopped. But would you join me in praying again and just welcoming God's presence on the teaching this morning? Jesus, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you spoke to us in stories. You didn't dictate laws over us, but you spoke to us in a way that our hearts respond to you in storytelling. I pray that you would continue to um, develop, Jesus, in your faithfulness, that you would develop uh, your good stories out of Vineyard Cleveland. Let us be your good stories, God. We were once this, but you're transforming us. You're making us like that. We were once dead, and now we're alive. And, we, and you continue to move through us and bring life to our city. I pray that there be life in uh, the word this morning. You, would you put power on, on the word and m- make your stories come alive to us this morning? It wouldn't be just words on a page, God. It wouldn't be just a church service. It wouldn't be religion, but that we would truly experience you, Holy Spirit, in the pages of Scripture and in one another's lives and um, in the gathering we call church. Would you come and come and hold folks where they need to be held? Would you come and um, meet people right where they're at? Would you meet us right where we're at, God, and change us? Let me say something that's uh, relevant to where people are living, God. Pray that I'd honor you as I come to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And this is a familiar story to many of us. We're going to be reading uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So uh, a subtitle to this talk would be The Man Lying Half Dead in the Ditch. Because that's who this story is really about. We call it, it's been called throughout, you know, centuries, the parable of the good Samaritan. We've got hospitals named after this dude. We've uh, got a law named after him, the good Samaritan law. 
But I don't know about you, every time I hear a teaching on the Good Samaritan, which, you know, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard numerous Sunday school teachings with green felt boards on this guy up into adulthood, and it's all about this guy. It's all about the Good Samaritan. And when you hear a teaching about him, you're like, oh, okay, I kind of get what's going on here. These guys didn't stop. This guy did stop. He's a good guy. Let's follow his example. Am I right? Am I right or am I right? It's like, um, but see, that's, that's religion again. Then religion's got us again because it's like follow good examples. When, when the gospel doesn't come through following good examples, the gospel comes through bad examples. That's how the gospel comes. We realize that we failed. <laughs> Not that we follow good examples. Here's a good example for you to follow. Yeah, right. Have fun trying that. Have fun trying to follow good examples. Let's see how far you get. <laughs> I know the way that I was saved was by following a bad example. The example of myself as God. What about you? That's the way that salvation comes, not through following good examples. So, for a minute, can we be all on the same page and like hold off, uh, let's hold off judgment for a minute on the guys who walk by on the other side of the road. Mainly I'm saying this for grace for myself, because who walks by on the side of the road? A priest. <laughs> so maybe it's like, easy, go easy on me. <laughs> The priest walks by on the other side of the road. The Levite walks by on the other side of the road. Let's hold off on judgment on those guys for a second. Can we do that? And also, let's, let's hold off putting uh, Good Samaritan on pedestal again. And how great he is. The hero of the story. And let's just let the story be what the story is. Which is a mirror. Because I, I would, if I were a betting man... I would wager that as we read through the story of the Good Samaritan, you'll begin to see uh, pieces of yourself in all of these characters. You know, it's not so clear cut. It's not so black and white as like, okay, you know, church, you are those dudes who walk by. Shame on you for walking by. Try harder. Or good on you, church. You're the Good Samaritan. We're doing great. You know, pat on the back. It's not that clear cut, right? We see little pieces of ourselves in each one of these characters in this story. So let's read the story, and then we'll dig in a little bit. Um, it's Luke 10, uh, and it's 25 through 37, verses 25 through 37. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we'd like to offer you um, a Bible for free. We've got them on either side of the stage. You're welcome to pick one up anytime this morning. If you want one, it's yours. Take it. If you want three... Take them and give them to your friends. They're all yours. Um, and if you have it, if you don't have it, you can get it on your phone even. They make an app for Bible, so you can like swipe there with your Bible, uh, with your phone. Okay, so uh, 10.25, and we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, talking about the Jewish law, the Torah, so he's an expert at religion. He knows the Jewish religion, front and back. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how, uh, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. (laughs) But he wanted to justify himself. Super key right there. So we ask Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's a really important question as well. We'll get into that. He's not really asking who his neighbor is. He's asking who his neighbor is not. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, he's got some priestly duties there in the temple, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity or had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense, any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He doesn't even call him a Samaritan. That one. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Okay, what does inheritance require? What inheritance requires? Inheritance requires something of us. um, And the answer is, is that it requires Nothing. Inheritance doesn't require you to earn it or take it. Inheritance belongs to you as a son or a daughter. The similar, in a similar way as like an estate would be. If a loved one moves on and, and writes their will, you receive an inheritance. You don't take an inheritance. In fact, the people who try to take inheritances in movies and in real life are the ones who are the villains, aren't they? You receive inheritance. You belong to God. As a child of God, you belong to him. As we said last week, you are chosen by God. You're treasured and adored by him. You belong to God. Why do you belong to God? Because you do. He created you. He loves you. You did not create yourself. God loves you. You belong to him. Now, why did all this talk about inheritance? Because the teacher in the law, it wouldn't, it, some of your translations might say lawyer. It, don't think of like lawyer, like dun, dun, law and order in the courtroom. It's not that. It's an expert in the law. He's a religious teacher. He's very religious. He's um, a scribe or uh, maybe similar to how Hasidic Jews are portrayed on the news or in documentaries today. The curls and the law on their forehead, very much uh, knows all of the 613 laws in the Jewish Torah and knows everything about what's in there. 
And so he stands up, and it says, Luke writes, very specific, Luke is a doctor, and he's writing this gospel. He says why he asks this question, to test Jesus, teacher, rabbi. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question wouldn't have been out of context for the time. People were wondering. Greek philosophy is starting to float in there, and people are wondering what happens next. But Luke says that he asks this question in order to test Jesus. It's not the question that's funny. It's not the question that's awkward. It's not the question that's out of place. It's the way. Isn't it the way that people ask questions? What this is, so what's happening here is that this teacher, this expert in the law, is asking Jesus what's called in logic or in rhetoric or in philosophy a dishonest question. Who's taken logic at community college? Who knows this? This is called a dishonest question. This is what, okay, so a dishonest, this happens to me quite frequently, more than you would imagine. So someone asks you, you say, you never. So, so people will come up to you and they'll ask you a question and they, they already know the answer in their head. And they're not asking you because they want to learn something. They're asking you because they want you to agree with them. This, this expert in the law already knows the answer to this question, or so he thinks. And so he's trying to do what? He's trying to draw Jesus out. He's trying to smoke Jesus out. He's trying to corner him, some translations say. Do we ever act like the expert in the law and stand up in front of people? You say, you have never. Um, you, and ask people dishonest questions, preaching to people when we already think we know the answer. Instead of uh, being lifelong learners and looking at life as play and being curious about what we don't know instead of spouting off what we do. I wonder. This guy's asking a dishonest question to Jesus, and Jesus isn't offended. <laughs> I could picture Jesus standing there like, you know, he's a big boy, he can handle himself. It could have easily ended in theological debate or argument, this, this question here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so that's why inheritance requires nothing. This guy's getting at the wrong question. What must I do? What must I do? How can I earn? What, what do I need to do to earn the favor of God on my life? Do I need to stop doing bad things? Do I need to start doing good things? The more that I care about the poor, oh man, I should be more like the Good Samaritan. Then if I were more like him, then Jesus would love me. Then God would love me. If I was less like the priest, if I was less like the Levite, who did, it's not like they didn't care for him. They went all the way on the other side of the road and pass right by this bloody man who's dying. How could they do that? They're so rude. If I could be less like that, then God would love me. Then God would have favor on me. No. Inheritance requires nothing of you. That's the nature of, that's who Jesus is. Anything more than that, anything more that inheritance requires of you, that's why from religious teachers, all you he all you're here is obedience, obedience, obedience. Do it. Say yes to Jesus. Yeah, we want to say yes to Jesus. But from uh, legalistic teachers, that's all you'll hear. Do more. 
do bad less, do more. Say yes, say yes, say yes. Obey, obey, obey. Jesus is like, no, partner with me, partner with me, with me, with me, together, together. So um, what must I do? Nothing. You belong to God because you belong to God. That, you know, he could have answered uh, the expert in the law's question like that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus could have said, uh, nothing, or uh, follow me, but he doesn't. What does Jesus reply? Jesus replies, as he, as he always does when we read through Scripture and there's a parable or a story, Jesus replies uh, to a question with another question. And this would have been a traditional kind of Jewish kind of play here. When somebody asks a rabbi a question, the rabbi responds with another question. So Jesus does this all the time. And he says, well, you know, what's in the law that you know so well? What's in the law that you know so well? How do you read it? What's your take on this? What's your opinion on this? And the expert in the law sums it up. Uh, he gives them De- Deuteronomy 6. You know, he's, he's right there. Instead of spouting off all 613, I'll spare you. And he says, love, love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. How many churches in America have that for their slogan? Love God, love neighbor. This guy uses it as a proof of how to get eternal life as the law. Never really thought about that before. Hilarious. Um so religious. We're so religious as a culture. Gosh. Um, So love God, love neighbor. Well, what's so wrong with that? You might ask, what's wrong with loving God and loving neighbor? Well, what happens here is that Luke says again that he's seeking to justify himself. Or we would say in our culture, he wants to feel good about himself. He wants to feel like he's got it all together I'm doing fine. I know what I'm doing with my life. Because it's me, after all, who's in control. I phone, I God, me, God, me. He's in control. He wants to justify himself. And so he takes it further and he says, um, Jesus, like, well, uh, yeah, you've answered correctly. And Then the guy asks, so who's my neighbor? Won't you be? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And what he's really asking, what the the expert is really asking is, who isn't his neighbor? So who, who doesn't he have to love? Because that's the thing with inheritance, and that's the thing about um, having all of the right answers. Because this guy has all the right answers. He's got all the correct answers, yet he's still confused. You ever feel like that? He has all the right answers, yet he's still confused. Who is my neighbor? He wants to know who, not who his neighbor is, but who his neighbor isn't so he doesn't have to love him. You can have all of the right answers and have no love in your heart. So the, so the answer then is not having all of the right answers. The answer is to love more holy. Not holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, f- fully. To love more fully, not to have more right answers. Having more correct answers is the last thing that we need, essentially. 
is what Jesus is saying. You don't need, you don't have room for any more right answers in your head. You've got enough of those. You've got enough right answers to answer every single quiz in um, higher education in America. You don't need any more theory. You don't need any more uh, conceptions. You don't need any more um, ideals or ideas. What you need is love. You need love. And you, and you need to know that you're lost. That's what you need. You don't need more right answers. I don't need more... Okay, I'm not devaluing higher education. I graduated from the Ohio State University. I'm not devaluing uh, master's programs, higher education, the educational system. That's not what this is about. I'm just saying that this guy doesn't need more right answers. He needs transformation in his heart. He needs something that gets past all of the 613 laws found in the Torah to something that, you know, that beats down those barriers of religion and just holds a mirror up in front of his heart and says love. You know? He didn't understand. He didn't understand that love is more important than ritual impurity. He wanted to know what good things to do to get in, like so many of us. What do we have to do to get to God? What do we have to do? And Jesus says, that's not it. That's not it. It's not about doing more. It's about God coming to you and standing right in front of you. You know, Jesus is standing right in front of this guy. He wanted to know what bad things not to do. He already thought he knew, and yet he was still confused. You ever feel like that? And so Jesus says, let me tell you a story, as Jesus does so often. Jesus doesn't say, you're wrong, and now I'm going to show you where you're wrong in the law. No, he's, he's like, let me tell you a story, because Jesus gets it, right? Jesus understands that our hearts respond. There's something in our hearts that responds to story. So he uses the tool of storytelling to draw this guy in. Where this guy uses the law to smoke Jesus out, Jesus uses story to draw this guy in. It's wonderful. Henry Nouwen says that our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. So the point here of the story is that neighbors come from surprising places. Neighbors come from unexpected places. From people, sometimes our neighbors are people we think who are losers. They're your neighbor. From God, we... <laughs> this is really funny for service. We... And no... And no <laughs> it's absurd... To follow Jesus. Absurdity. He's the only Messiah who dies. Friar, um, Friar uh, Richard Capone says, not Al Capone. Uh, this, guy, this guy's like this monk. He says... Um, he says, we, we are in love with a loser Messiah. Our, our Messiah 
is the one who dies. The absurdity of that thought in Jewish culture to, to view Jesus as a Messiah would have been bananas. Just bonkers. That he dies because the Messiah doesn't die. He's the hero. And the hero doesn't die. The hero lives and comes in on a war horse and conquers and saves. Jesus is the loser Messiah and the Messiah of all losers. The way that you fall, <laughs> bring it down. The way that you follow Jesus is not by being a winner. The world doesn't need more winners. We follow a loser Messiah who's the Messiah of all losers, of all of those who said, I can't make it. I'm not enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough smarts. I'm not influential enough. I'm not connected with the right people. Those are the people that Jesus sees. Those are the hidden figures. He's the Messiah of all losers. Who wants to be a loser with me? <laughs> Come on, dude. Neighbors come from surprising places. So he begins to tell him a story. He tells the story. And he says, okay, there's this guy. And this guy's walking from Jerusalem, which is like 1,200 feet above sea level. And it's 17 miles from Jericho, which is like 2,200 feet below sea level. And this road, if you've been to Israel, I have not. But I'm told that if you've been to Israel and you've walked this road or traveled this road, it is in fact how Luke puts it and how Jesus tells the story. It's very long and winding. There are caves everywhere. It's perfect for ambush. In fact, in Jesus' time, this road was nicknamed the Bloody Pass. And Jews who were going from Jerusalem to Jericho or vice versa would carry weapons with them because it was known that if you go on this road, you're about to get jumped. And so this wouldn't have been an out of, uh, this, this wouldn't have been an awkward analogy or story that Jesus is telling. People would have known. He's standing there perhaps on the road. And Jesus takes this question that the scribe or the expert in the law throws at him and pulls it out of midair and places it smack down on the curb between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he says, let me tell you this story. There was once this guy, and he's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then in the middle of his journey, he gets jumped. And it's like the prince, princess bride. He's mostly dead. He's, he's, he's mostly dead. He gets beat up, he's stripped down, he's naked, he's lying in the gutter. And we call this parable the parable of the Good Samaritan. But this guy lying in the, in the gutter, he's the hidden figure. And he's who I want us to relate with today. And so as he's beat up and lying in the gutter, here comes two guys. And they, one happens to be a religious authority. One happens to be a priest. And the other is a Levite with um, some priestly duties there as well, some function there in the temple. And they walk by. And they don't just walk by, but they go to the other side of the road and then continue on their journey. Why do they do this? Our imaginations might uh, say that they do this because they're bad guys. 
one plus one equals two. However, if we were to come down off of our high horse for one moment and realize that these dudes are um, Torah-abiding religious authorities, and they're on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's why I said, let's give these dudes the benefit of, of the doubt for like one minute. Let's give these guys grace. Because in the Jewish law, which they would have known and carried on their forehead and with tassels on their uh, coats, uh, we would have read that it is illegal, it is forbidden for these guys to touch a dead body or a body who's dying within 24 hours of that of them performing a religious ceremony. So if they were on their way to temple, they're not stopping and touching that guy. And that desire is to please God. They're trying to please God. And so, in their hearts, that's not a bad desire. We cannot fault them for that. Would you? As soon as we begin to fault them for that, who do we fault? Hmm delicious. Uh, So this guy walks by, and then a Levite walks by again. Now, we could, we could also, we could give them the benefit of the doubt. We could also take it a step further, like Martin Luther King Jr. says, we could, of the Good Samaritan, we could say that these gentlemen are fine gentlemen. That, you know, they're actually, they might be, if you let your imagination go for a minute, that they might be on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho to organize and lead the Jerusalem to Jericho Road Improvement Group. They're starting that because they believe in grassroots, and they believe in uh, fixing the problem from the cause rather than stopping for the individual. That was meant to be a joke. They probably weren't starting the Jerusalem to Jericho Road Improvement Act. But if we were to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they were. And then you've got the Samaritan. Enter the Samaritan. And for Jesus to say, for the words to come out of his mouth, that this was a Samaritan that was helping this dead man in the gutter would have been really offensive to this religious leader, this authority. This would have been like saying, uh, what will get me into trouble? Hmm. This would be like saying... Because they, they hated one another. Samaritans and Jews in this time just despised one another. We're actually at war with bloodshed, the, the whole deal. So it could have been like, um, let's, let's call him a Muslim, was the one who cared about his brother. And the American Christian cared nothing for his brother. Would you say that would be an accurate analogy? I would think so. Or maybe it's somebody from one political camp showing compassion to another. That's what it would be like. How divisive, choose any divisive issue in our, in our culture and put those two sides in the story. And that's what it would have been like to the nth degree. It would have been very offensive for this man to hear that this was a Samaritan who was the one who cared for this man who was dying in the gutter. Really offensive. This was a half-breed This was somebody who was less than in society. So very much the hero is the bad guy. Again with the Jesus stuff. The hero is the bad guy. The good guys in the stories that Jesus tells, the good guys are always the bad guys. And in the stories Jesus tells, 
the bad guys are always the good guys. Isn't that so offensive? The bad guys are the good guys. The bad guy is the hero in this story. He's a traitor. He's a bad guy. The Samaritan is not a good guy. He's a bad guy. Think about it for a moment. Jesus is telling a story in which he uses another religion's scriptures as an example for what love is. That would be like you going to someone who doesn't believe and using the Koran to show them that Christ is the only answer. Aha! Now we're getting down to brass tacks. That's who Jesus is. There's no other way to read this story historically. There's no other way. He's using a different religion's scripture to show this religious person what love looks like. Amazing. Brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. My gosh. I love him. Yeah, the priest, he would have been telling the story and the guy listening would have been like, oh, here comes the priest. Yeah, that guy's getting saved. <laughs> Isn't the way, that's the way we think about it. Oh, here comes the worship leader. Here, here comes the Levite. That dude's getting saved. Watch, watch what happens in the story. And Jesus is like, nope. In fact, they walk by on the other side of the road. <laughs> Sorry, dead guy. Then the, um, then the Samaritan comes by and Jesus says, this is the guy. This is the guy who stops and cares for the dying man. And he does six things when he stops. He, he comes toward him, and this is huge, where the other guys walk away. Uh, this guy comes toward the dead man. How, how often do we walk towards losers? is what the Holy Spirit gave me this week. Sorry, it's not deep. How often do we walk towards losers? If you think somebody's a loser in your life, I don't know about you, but if we are really honest with one another and I see somebody who I deem as less than or a loser, I walk which way? Away from losers. We walk away from losers. This guy, the Samaritan, walks towards the loser. So he walks towards the loser Then he um, binds his wounds. And then he pours oil and wine to comfort him. And then he picks him up and puts him on the mule. And then he takes him to the inn and he pays for him. And he doesn't just pay for him. He, He gives, Luke says, he gives two silver coins. That's like a week's wages. How, how often do we give (laughs) a, a week's wages to someone we love? let alone someone we hate. And then, if that weren't enough, he says to the innkeeper, if this dude, like, uh, runs up my tab, or runs up the tab, put it on me. Put it on me. Vineyard Cleveland, let's be a church where the loser's tab comes to us and we pick up the check. Vineyard Cleveland, let's be a people where we pick up the check of all of the losers in Cleveland, Ohio. Who's with me? Hot dog. Okay, so he cares for him, and uh, 
Then Jesus asks them the question, who, who was a neighbor to this man? And the religious scribe is no dummy. He says, it was the man. Notice he doesn't call him what Jesus calls him, a Samaritan. He doesn't identify him ethnically as Jesus did before. Jesus, like I was very clear, he's Samaritan. You, you got, right, the man. The man who showed mercy is what the religious scribe. Everybody's identified in the story except for the man in the gutter. We don't know who he is. He's probably Jewish. And... Um, the Samaritan is not identified when the religious scribe answers Jesus' question, which I think is interesting. So he says, who's the neighbor? Who's neighbor to this guy who's lying dead in the gutter? And the man says, it's the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. And it's not a guilty go and do likewise with a huge 14-inch finger in this guy's face, is it? No, it's a pat on the back of a brother. Let's go do likewise. Let's hear Jesus like that. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked. Your neighbor is the one who scandalizes you with compassion, Jesus answered. Your neighbor is the one who upends all the entrenched categories and shocks you with the fresh face of God. Your neighbor is the one who mercifully steps over the ancient bloodied line separating us from them and teaches you the real meaning of good. Who's the good man? Who's the great man? It's the one who showed mercy to the guy, the loser in the gutter. So, the question then, when we see ourselves as the hidden figure, the man lying in the gutter, who will be a, who will be a neighbor to us? You know, Jesus is like the Good Samaritan, but he's like the man lying in the gutter all at the same time. Who, who will be a neighbor to us? And the final question we want to get at, is the, same, is the same one MLK posed to his listeners in the 60s in the civil rights movement. Here's what the question is not, what this parable is asking. The question is not, what will happen to me if I stop and help this man? If I stop and help this refugee family, if I stop and I address the heroin epidemic in Northeast Ohio, if I stop and, um, and seek to eradicate and bring justice to uh, victims of human trafficking, if I stop and help this man, what's going to happen to me? What will happen to my job? What will happen to my family if I speak up for Jesus at my workplace? What's going to happen to me if I stop and help this man? The question is not, what's going to happen to me? You see, because that's the same question that the priest and the Levite asked. They saw the man. They saw the man. And they asked, what would happen to me if I stopped and helped this man? But the Samaritan came along and he reversed the question. He reversed the question. He said, if I don't stop, what's going to happen to him? 
The question is not, what will happen to me if I stop and help? The question is, if I don't stop and help, what will happen to refugee families in the city of Cleveland? Will they receive a welcome? Probably not. Most Americans are isolated within their own nose. If I don't stop and help victims of human trafficking, if I don't, and I don't care who it is, I'm giving extreme examples, find somebody who's less well off than you. They're out there. If I don't stop, what's gonna happen to them? That's the question before us. That's the question in the parable, and that's the question on us, Vineyard Cleveland. Why don't you join me in?